Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Dead Zone, the prologue and chapters one through five. Let's start the show. In 1953, a six-year-old boy, Johnny Smith, falls while ice skating and seems to suffer a concussion. He mumbles something about an explosion in acid to an adult when he awakes, and a few weeks later, that adult suffers burns when a car battery explodes. Two years later, across the country, a door-to-door salesman of Bibles, Greg Stilson, kicks a dog to death and thinks about how he is meant for greater things. In October 1970, Johnny Smith is dating fellow schoolteacher Sarah. They go to a carnival where Johnny wins over $500 on a wheel of fortune with some unlikely bets. After their date, Johnny is in a car accident that results in him being in a coma. A month later, in the town of Castle Rock, a man strangles a young woman. Over the next few years, while Johnny remains in a coma, Sarah mourns her loss of Johnny, but eventually is engaged to another man. Johnny's parents deal with their grief in their own ways. His father ages quickly, and his mother turns to religious quackery. Greg Stilson becomes a public servant in New Hampshire. And, after killing four women, the Castle Rock Strangler strikes again. Jay, I'm so excited that we are discussing The Dead Zone. As am I. This has been on our list of not necessarily Dark Tower related, but books that we wanted to get to. And I was actually so excited about it, about this book that uh, about a year ago, I picked it up and read it in like one long weekend. Just for funsies, Just for funsies. And I remember writing you and saying, we have to do this on the podcast because there's a couple of Dark Tower thinnies that are going to blow people's minds. That's great. I'm really enjoying this. I've, I haven't read this since, I don't know, the 90s. And uh, so it's largely forgotten to the, the dusts of time for me, but I am enjoying the crap out of this book. And I think this rounds out our coverage of all of King's 70s era books, right? Except for Carrie. Yeah, that's right. We haven't <laughs> talked about his first published book. No. Interesting. We'll get to it eventually. We'll have to get to that someday. But I really like his work from this period of time. Yes, it's quite a bit different from his work in the 80s. And then obviously his work after that, he has some of the stylistic tics he has, but they are toned down quite a bit. But it's still obviously King. And the way that he gets you to turn pages is just amazing. Yeah, like Salem's Lot is from this era as well. And I loved how that was a book in its time, of its time, when it was published. And the stand was sort of fractured in the, in the way that we talked about at length, mm. about how it was rewritten for the 90s, so things were changed to make it contemporaneous with its publication or republication, which kind of made some of it not quite linked together. But this book is a return to the form of Salem's Lot in that this is a book of the 70s that was written in the 70s. And... I don't know. I just, I, I really am enjoying this like late seventies era life that the characters are living. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And yet 
even with this being an obvious 70s novel, one of the reasons that I picked it up last year and one of the reasons it's come back in a lot of ways is because of the subject matter. It is actually a pretty timely book when it comes to a lot of things and not just the most obvious political parallels that there are, but there are some other things as well. And we'll discuss that more. Yep. Um, as you said, this book is from the late 70s. It was published August 30th, 1979. So by my math, that makes it like 43 years old. Can you believe it? 43 years old, Jay. And this is wow. King's fifth novel. What do we got? Carrie. Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, and then this. And then the first two Bachman books were also published at this time. In fact, I think The Long Walk came out the month before this book came out. Wow. We, we say it over and over again, but it's like he came out of the... The, the gate. Yeah, he came out of the gate at full speed and yeah. just kept dropping massive successes. Yep. It's amazing. Um, this was turned into a movie in 1983, so just four years later. It was directed by David Cronenberg and starred an actor named Christopher Walken, Jay. Are you familiar with Mr. Walken's oeuvre? I never heard of him. Yeah. Please tell me more. Yeah, yeah. Quite an interesting actor. I think maybe we'll talk a little bit more about him later. It was also made into a TV show starring Anthony Michael Hall as Johnny Smith, which ran, I can't believe this, when I looked this up, six seasons and started uh -huh. in 2002. I have seen absolutely none of those episodes of TV show, so I cannot talk to it at all. I watched it pretty regularly, but I don't remember much of it. It was just one of those things that I watched when it was on and... It's just mostly just forgettable TV. Um, and then as we talked about, uh, I read the book a long, long time ago, probably in the 80s until I read it again last year. I have not seen the movie in a long, long time. I've seen bits and pieces and I can remember certain scenes, but the movie's sort of a black hole for me. How about you, Jay? I don't think I've ever actually seen the whole movie. I'm mm. sure that I've seen clips of it and I've seen parodies of it, uh, but no, I... I the short answer is no, I, I haven't seen the movie, but I'm looking forward to watching it and discussing it with you on a future bonus episode. Yes, that will be great. All right, well, let's get into it. This is quite a book, as you could tell from my introduction. There's a lot going on in this first five chapters, and I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, but then also the timing of the book, which is something you've already started to bring up, Jay. The fact that this is a period piece taking place in the 70s, and there's a lot to notice, especially even from someone like you, you and I who grew up a little bit in the 70s, uh, don't remember mm -hmm. all of it, but but some of it, but then also like pieces of it that you're also like, wow, this is pretty timely. Yeah. You and I were only about seven years old when the 70s ended. So uh, we wouldn't really have been going to fairs and things like that at the same time that Johnny was going. But we've experienced things like that in our, our lives. And so we can definitely relate. But there are just things that really stand out in terms of the time period, the technology, how phones work, how something like being put on hold that is silent is something that's new to people. <laughs> yeah. And that it's and that newness is something that people resent. It really puts you in the the time frame mm -hmm. of the story. Yeah. And things, you know, even before we get to any of the political stuff that's going to come, there is a lot political happening in this book. Johnny and Sarah are young people in the early 70s. They're very aware of protests against the war. Later on, there's talk of the gas prices going up and the energy crisis. There's all these little things that King's dropping all over the place throughout that really bring to light how 
we always think of the 60s as being a very rebellious time, but there was a lot of conflict going on in the 70s too, just of a different type. And King is smart to sprinkle it through to give you a feel for that. And, and to let us know that that's an important part of the story. Right. And that it's, you know, it, it doesn't come full circle and it's not affecting the characters' lives altogether. It's out there. Um, and there's these big differences between, I would say, older people and the younger people here brought to light mm-hmm. most in, in Johnny's parents. Like they, they seem to be of an entirely different generation than, than Johnny by, by far. And all that together, sort of this look at what the 70s were like, this dropping of history, as well as this episodic nature of it. There's this jumping from character to character. We get a lot of time with John Smith, but then after Johnny has his accident and he's in the coma, we jump around a lot. We're with Stilson some, we're with Sarah some, we're with John's parents some. There's this odd scene with the lightning rod salesman that seems to come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. We get this other point of view chapter from a, the Castle Rock Strangler as he killed somebody. Then there's this other scene where these kids find another body. Like There's not a clear through line. A lot of the books that we read think The Running Man or The Shining. Like It's pretty much one or two characters' point of view all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. Here, we're seeing lots of different things and it makes it feel episodic, but not in a way that is jerky or or in a way that disrupts it. I have a feeling it's all going to get together at some point and I just am hoping that King will guide me there. I share your confidence in King on that. And the episodic nature was already reflected in your quick recap at the beginning yeah. of the episode. Like you said, this happened and then this happened and then this happened because that is how King has structured this book. It's not just a change of character perspective or point of view. It's like a journal entry, mm. as if some other party is just jotting this down for us and just giving us info. This is what happened. And then this is what happened. And I don't know, it really works for me. The way King has constructed this, the style in which he's writing, how this information is portrayed, it doesn't just feel like an info dump after info dump. It, it feels like a, a solid story. And we're really with these characters when we're with them. But every once in a while, we get these like interstitials where, and then this happened. Right. It's not like Salem's Lot, which was like that for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Salem's Lot jumped around. But it seemed in Salem's Lot that the undercurrent to all those stories was the rot in the town. Mm-hmm. That there were bad things that were not being shown up front. It was sort of the subtext throughout these people's relationship. Here, and I think you said it right about talking about the characters, like each of these characters seem like they're living very full lives. Like they seem like real people. Johnny's parents, they're very different from each other and very different from the other characters, but you get a good sense of both of them. Mm-hmm. John is sort of generic by intent. His name is John Smith. But you also get a sense of Stilson and you get a sense of Sarah. And Sarah's got all these facets to her, right? She's in love with John, but she also wants to move on with her life. And she's still a young woman and she's discovering herself sexually and all these other things. And it's just sort of all over the place. And I think even in this episodic way, all of these characters, because they are so well rendered, I think King makes it so that we care about this and it doesn't seem herky jerky that we're, hey, don't worry, I, I got you. Just follow along with these characters. If you like these characters, you're going to like where I'm going. Yeah, even the lightning rod salesman who seems to be random feels like there's actually some dimensionality to him. Yep. And maybe it's just because this is our first encounter with this character. But all of these characters that we're jumping from one to the next, a few stand out. Johnny is, of course, the most important one. He's He seems to be the main character of our story here. But it makes me wonder, like, 
we just finished talking about The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Does Johnny have The Shining? Because like from time to time after he has his fall on the ice, he like has these hunches, mm -hmm. just like we see with the Wheel of Fortune and he wins big bucks at the fair. So is it The Shining or is King coming up with some, has he invented some entirely new supernatural power based on head injury? Yeah, I don't think he's invented anything. I think there's this whole concept of precognition that he seems to be pulling in from, which of course is a little bit of what Danny has. That's his version of the shine, right? He sees some, he can mm -hmm. see some future things. So I, I hope it's not sort of like the Phantom Menace where he's trying to explain it by saying, oh, he hit his head and look what happened. And uh -huh. Johnny hitting his head is the midichlorians of, of the dead zone. How dare you, sir? <laughs> but I do think if not the shining, I mean, King loves exploring people with powers, right? Mm -hmm. Firestarter, The Shining, This Story, The Institute, Dr. Sleep, like all these books have variations of people who have some sort of power. If it's not The Shining, it's probably pretty close. And I have a feeling that Halloran would have said, oh yeah, he's got a little bit of The Shine. He would have noticed it right away. Mm. Having said that, it does seem like it's got a specific origin story. It's not something that was handed down from his parents. It seems a, a definite result of him hitting his head as a youngster. And that's what I meant by King inventing it. Yeah, yeah. Not, oh. not the idea of, of the superpower precognition, just the, the idea of why does this character in this story have this power? Mm. Is it the same reason that Danny Torrance has it? Is it the same reason that Elaine slash Alan slash Alan in, <laughs> in Wizard and Glass has the shine or, or the touch? And, you know, in those circumstances, we're basically told by King in one way or another that these are all the same ability that only some people have and they each have it to varying degrees and it takes on maybe slightly different forms. So if John Smith can predict which number to put a quarter on and win big bucks, I guess you can call it whatever you want. It's it's like The Shining if it isn't The Shining itself. Even more interesting is the fact that Greg Stilson, who seems to be an antagonist, if not the direct antagonist of this book at this point, if he doesn't have the exact same power as John, he's got some sort of indications of it. Like he, he gets headaches. Mm -hmm. He has this vision of himself being set for better things, that he's going to be someone at some point. Even you get the sense that he's a pretty good salesman, which you could probably link to somebody who has some sort of shining or manipulative power, right? Like that would lead well to become a good salesman if you could know what people were thinking or what buttons to push to help them to buy something. So oh yeah, all those things seem to be a version of, if not The Shining, maybe sort of a inverted mirror of what John has? I would say absolutely. I, I think that this is a clever juxtaposition that King is setting up, that John Smith is the protagonist and has a power to see visions of the future. And Stilson is the antagonist and has a power to see visions of his own greatness mm. is how he puts it. And because he is portrayed as immoral or perhaps completely amoral, he will do anything it takes to achieve this greatness that he sees for himself. Then again, he might just be, <laughs> uh, he might just be just somebody who's full of himself. Like, uh, it's not that he has visions at all. It's just, he's a narcissist. I'm awesome. but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's a narcissist and, and he's, and he's willing to step on anybody and anything literally in the case of the dog, to achieve his ends. Yep. And we talked a little bit about this offline, but that first scene, we've talked how there is a screenwriting book called Save the Cat, mm -hmm. which is about how you have your hero 
save a cat in the first few pages so you know, hey, this is this is the hero of the movie. And the inverse of that is kill the dog. And we see Stilson kill a dog within a few pages of meeting him. And not just kill it, but like kill it brutally. Mm -hmm. But show our main character do something absolutely unforgivable. Just show just how much of a Machiavellian this guy is. So in addition to John and Greg Stilson, which seem to be our two main characters, we have a number of other characters. We're not going to get into all of them. But I did want to talk a little bit about King's treatment of the women characters, especially when it comes to women who are mothers. And we're introduced to, well, we're introduced to one character who is a mother, and that's Johnny's mom. But we also see sort of secondhand through the eyes of the Castle Rock Strangler who kills a woman, a version of his mom mm -hmm. that, that leads him the way. And I wonder what King's doing here because in Carrie, this is a big thing. And, and in this book, he doesn't have the best treatment of mothers. Yeah. King does not struggle with creating female characters <laughs> like these who are just so unapologetically unlikable. Yeah. And in very different ways. You know, Johnny's mother is somebody who loves her son mm -hmm. and seems like would do almost anything to protect him, care for him, support him. But King has also folded in this, not just a religious zealotry, but somebody who is prone to believe conspiracy theories. So she kind of gets her, her religious fervor wires crossed mm -hmm. and she stops being just a deeply religious person and starts to become kind of a, a crazy person. Yeah. With the guise of religion. So therefore, she is righteous about her conspiracy theories because they are, in her mind, in her crisscrossed wires, these are holy teachings. These are, you know, the word of God and you can't question them. You have no grounds to question God. So if the spaceship is going to land and whisk us away after we kill ourselves with poisoned Kool-Aid, well, that's just what God wants, right? Yep. And it's sad too, because you can see that as you said, her wires are crossed and most of the time she's in this crazed way. And every once in a while, her husband, John's father, Herb, can break through. Mm -hmm. Like there's these moments of clarity where she realizes, wait a minute. Or, or at least he thinks he sees that, right? Like, no, you love me. You love your son. Don't think about this. And then she immediately goes back to, no, no, this is the only way that, you know, God has sent us, sent this to happen. And this is the only way we can make sure that Johnny's okay. And Herb is just like, uh, because it, it is sad the way that these conspiracy theories take place. This is something that we talked about earlier. One of the things that may be of its time, but is also very timely with all the conspiracy theories we have today. What about the Strangler's mom? Wasn't there something you wanted to talk about with her? Yeah. So the Strangler is pretty convinced that the reason that he is the way he is is because of his mother, because she was always worried about the nasty fuckers. And he didn't know what the second word meant. But he got a pretty good sense of the feeling of it with the way she was talking. And she seemed to abuse the killer. We don't know who this killer is. He's left nameless at this point. But she seemed to abuse him with uh, clothespins in the wrong part of the body that uh, was painful. And this is something that he's thinking about when he kills. Clothespins don't go on any part of the body, Sean. I don't know what you're talking about. Unless you're a xenobite or something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I am not a xenobite. <laughs> but it's not only that she's you know abusive to her son and that the son has this fear of his mother, but even the way she's described is not great by King. She was a big woman, a dominant and overbearing ocean liner of a woman. And he was not the killer then. He was not slick then. He was a little boy blubbering with fear. 
this is King being very clear on body types and what he feels is as scary and bad and wrong, unfortunately, which he had a tendency to do, I think, in his earlier days of writing. Yeah. King's never been too kind on certain body types. Yeah. But it's also clear that he's painting the actions and psychology of this killer character as a direct result of the abuse he's received from his mother. And I think he has shaped her um, as somebody to be as imposing and threatening as possible to cause fear in her very young son and mold him in the worst way possible. Yep. And it's odd because this guy has obviously gone to one extreme based on the way Mm -hmm. his mom is. And John is very happy-go-lucky about the way his mother is. Like when he talks about her to Sarah, he's like, ah, my mom's a Baptist and she's a little bit much, but I'd love for you to meet her someday. You know, like he's very nonchalant about it. Yeah. Which I guess is another sort of mirror version, right? But for the grace of God goes uh, John. Yeah. When Sarah asked John, like, well, is your dad a Baptist too? And he says, nah, he's a carpenter. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. All right. So you just brought up Sarah. I think she is the outlier here on, on how King treats women. She is very different from these two women we've already discussed. Yeah. Sarah Bracknell. Yep. She is thoughtful, intelligent. She's sexually active and okay with that. Uh-huh. And she has an idealized relationship with Johnny. Idealized in that they never get to consummate their relationship. So she's left with this promise of what their relationship could have been. And therefore it is and remains perfect in her mind. And nothing can truly be perfect, even in the world of fiction that this book occupies. So we never get to see what the real relationship would be. Even if it was great, it still wouldn't be the perfection of her imagination. And that makes it all the more painful for her to eventually abandon that relationship and move on with her life. But this is another kind of instance of fate. Like she thought that her fate was taking her one way, that she was going to be with this man, John Smith, and maybe fall in love with him, which she did, and then maybe marry him, which she didn't do. And speaking of fate, we should probably talk about fate and the wheel of fortune that John encounters at the fairgrounds. Because in some ways, it's that moment that turns his story and his story with Sarah on its heel, right? Yes. So I think fate is a big theme of this book, especially of this section. And it's well represented with this idea of this Wheel of Fortune game at the carnival that they go to. But the Wheel of Fortune is not the only aspect of fate, as you talked a little bit about before. Sarah already had this idea that her fate was going to be with Johnny and it wasn't. But even before they find the Wheel of Fortune, John says to her, I'll come to a bad end. My mother always said so. So there's this idea of this is my fate. I'm going to come to a bad end. And then later on, Sarah says to him at some point, I think maybe when they're getting on one of the rides or they're doing something at the carnival, and she says, go to hell. Nobody lives forever. So there's already these ideas that that fate's coming, that there's these things you cannot avoid. The Wheel of Fortune just represents all that. And it becomes this thing that John becomes obsessed with. Like as soon as he sees it, even though the carny is just going through his patter very gently and he's sweeping up and he's trying to close down for the night, it's enough that it draws his attention and he can't escape it, right? Mm -hmm. He seems to be drawn in and sort of immensely focused on it. So much so that he seems to ignore Sarah, which is the first time he has done so through all the whole night. He's very engaged with her throughout, very respectful of her, very you know aware of everything that she's doing. But as soon as he sees that Wheel of Fortune, everything changes. Yeah. Another fateful moment is the moment of Johnny's accident. Mm. And he lives through it, but goes into a very long coma 
but the cab driver does not. And neither do the two kids in the other car, right? Right. In fact, I think everybody else dies. Yeah. But the cab driver is just yammering on and on. And like before he can even finish basically ranting and raving (laughs) about how no matter what he does, it all just falls apart in the end. It does. It literally falls apart because he gets into a head-on collision with some streetcar racers and dies instantly. Another fate-related thing was starting this story somewhere near Halloween and John opening his door and greeting Sarah with a Jekyll and Hyde mask on. Mm. And that gave him that instantaneous half-half of part monster, part regular person mask. And that very much foreshadows what Johnny becomes when he's mesmerized by the Wheel of Fortune, that he's like, he's two people. Sometimes he's this regular person who's this great guy. And then every once in a while, he gets sucked into things and he's basically not in control of his behavior, Yep, which is very much the story of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. So I think we'll be talking about fate a lot and mostly because Johnny's power is precognition, which is the ability to see the future. And I think the big question is going to be when you're able to see the future, is there anything you can do about it? Or is fate stuck the way it is? There's no fate but what we make, Sean. Oh, this is not a idea that King is unfamiliar with. In fact, it seems to haunt him, maybe only coming to a head when he finally writes 112263. But this whole idea of fate, what can you do to change it and how it goes on is important. And like I said, the Wheel of Fortune, which is what this section of the book is, is named, is a good representation metaphor for it. But there's enough other hints that that's not the only one. Jay, all of this talk of the Wheel of Fortune, though, makes me think that this might be related to the Dark Tower in some way. Is it time for some Dark Tower thinnies? Oh, I think so. So we talked about this in Dr. Sleep with the idea of the wheel and knowing that Ka is a wheel. Is there anything more Ka than a wheel of fortune? I don't think so. Yeah, a literal wheel of fate and and Ka is a wheel. Like This is all coming together here. That's right. A wheel is meant to turn and it always comes back to where it starts. I think it's a great metaphor. We'll talk a little bit about it later in the fun stuff, but I just love this idea of this wheel of fortune. And just to be clear, everyone, we're not talking about like the wheel of fortune, like with the money on it and the letters that you have to guess with Pat Sajak and Vanna White. We're talking about like a wheel that's got numbers on it and you're spinning it and you bet on it like a a roulette wheel. That's what we're talking Mm -hmm. about here. That's right. Actual fortune. Yes. (laughs) Instead of letters. Instead of letters and vowels. What other Dark Tower thinnies are there, Jay? There were a nice handful of Dark Tower thinnies. One was that Sarah lives on Flag Street, and that is spelled F-L-A-G-G, just like a certain Randall we often discuss. That's amazing. It is. It really is. I can't believe they named a street after him in New Hampshire. Like, I wonder what he did. (laughs) Maybe he, uh, you know, he held public office briefly and had a street named after him. Yeah, good for him. Or he's the developer. I always think it's a developer or the developer's kid. They name it after him. That's a good one. What others have you found? Well, after Johnny goes into a coma, we find out that he's in room 619. What? There's a 19 at the end there, Jay. Get it? 19. Yeah, but more importantly, and this is something I struggle with for no good reason, that means he's in room 19 on the sixth floor. That is correct. Not the 619th room in the hospital. No. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the clarification there. I generally think of myself as a fairly intelligent person, <laughs> but this one thing always 
mixes me up. I'm like, all right, so there are at least 619 rooms in this building. <laughs> Interesting. No, that's not how this works at all. Not how it works. <laughs> uh, of course, another really dead on thinny is that when Johnny wins big, he puts the whole wad on number 19. Oh, that's his big winning number is 19, Sean. Yeah, that's crazy. This reminder, everyone, this book came out well before The Gunslinger. King might have been working on The Gunslinger before this, but it had not been published yet when this book came out. He was already thinking about 19. Yeah, the number 19 was just popping into his head left and right. Crazy. Yep. So those first four Dark Tower thinnies, Jay, both you and I noticed, I think they were pretty obvious to us. Cause wheel, flag, 19s. This last one, I somehow totally read over and did not notice. I, I want to give you kudos to finding this last Dark Tower thinny. Well, thank you. And I saw this and immediately went, ooh, 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 because Johnny is referred to by one of the other spectators at the Wheel of Fortune as long, tall, and ugly. Oh. And that is Eddie's favorite nickname for Roland. Amazing. I've never heard that outside of the Dark Tower books. I thought it was something King made up for the Dark Tower. But maybe it was something people call him because mm. I think he's kind of tall and yep. he probably doesn't think of himself as, you know, particularly handsome fella. So in a self-deprecating way, maybe he thinks of himself as long, tall and ugly. Yeah, could be. It's a great thinny. I don't know. Maybe he's uh, making John Smith his analog in this story. He is an English teacher, so it's getting close to being a writer. Mm -hmm. And King was an English teacher for a year or two. Yeah. Long, tall and ugly. Long, tall and ugly. All right, I think it's time for yucking it up. Let's do it. Blah. So not a lot of gross stuff in this section, but I did want to call out that most of the Wheel of Fortune section is told from Sarah's perspective. And when she gets sick, she says to herself, not the backdoor trots, Lord, please. And I just... <laughs> <laughs> we don't actually get to see the backdoor trots, fortunately, but her talking about it was enough to put it in yucking it up for me. Did you say fortunately or unfortunately? <laughs> yeah. We didn't get to see it, fortunately. Ah, uh, okay. So you're glad it didn't happen. I'm, I'm glad I did not have to have a description of the backdoor trots. Got it. I wanted to, to just mention two things. Normally, I keep it to one, but one is just sort of... Uh, it's a, uh, meta, it's a little, it's a, it's a meta yeah. yucking it up. It's a meta yucking it up. And this is when the lightning rod salesman is trying to make a sale to the bar owner. And he's getting very frustrated by the rest of the patrons in the bar because they're basically killing the, the chances of making a sale. Yep. And he refers to them as clowns standing around yucking it up. <laughs> so I thought, wow, he actually said the words yucking it up. So I had to mention it here. That was fantastic. I read, that was another one that I read right over. And you pointed out, I'm like, why is this in yucking it up? It, oh, yucking it up. <laughs> it's like the <laughs> pun right there. Uh, and then the one that I did want to call out as just being a yucky moment is uh, when Sarah is throwing up, she struck a light pole with her shoulder, staggered, grabbed it, and threw up. It seemed to come all the way from her heels, convulsing her stomach like a sick, slick fist. She let herself go with it as much as she could. Smells like cotton candy, she thought. And with a groan, she did it again, then again. So she didn't have the backdoor trots, nope. but she did have the front door uh, ejection. Yes. I think the saddest part about this, other than her actually getting sick, is just the way that 
John ignores her. Yeah, it was really frustrating. Because he had been such a nice guy up to that point and just so caring for her in everything that happened. And then in this one moment when she really needed him the most, he just didn't pay attention to her. Uh. I'm not trying to make excuses here, but it seemed like he was almost being controlled at a mystic level. Yeah. I don't think he could have broken away. No. You said mesmerizing earlier, and I thought that that was the perfect description. Yeah. Well, we want to thank our patrons for supporting the show and keeping it ad-free. That's one of the things that our patrons do by helping support us and keeping this feed ad-free, which it always will be. Not only that, they get to have exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes by becoming a patron, including, as Jay hinted at earlier, The Dead Zone coming up soon. Right after we finish this novel, we're going to get right into the movie. That's going to be exciting. Yeah, I can't wait to do that. So visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. Sean, is it time for fun stuff? It certainly is. Fun stuff. I'm going to start at the bottom of our list because it was the first thing in the book. And um, King has an author's note right at the beginning where he wants to inform us that there is no third congressional district in New Hampshire. That hasn't come up in the book yet, but I can make some guesses as why it will. But then he also says there's no town of Castle Rock. Wait, what? <laughs> no town of Castle Rock. Can you believe it? And that's There's be- a movie studio and a production company and so many books that take place and movies that take place in that town. How can there not be a Castle Rock? It turns out that King invented it for this novel. And I guess it must be the only thing that survives this novel because it ends up being in a lot more. Wow. All right. I don't think he's ever put a note like that in other books to say like, oh, this didn't exist. Like, no, we know you made it up, King. You're a fiction writer. (laughs) Like he should have put like, there's no town of Salem's lot and there's no vampires either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Why don't all works of fiction have warnings? Yeah. The story in this book is not true. The end. Randall Flagg is not a real person and neither is Mother Abigail. Hemingford Home does not exist. Boulder does but Las Vegas does not get nuked in real life. The stand. All right, what else you got for fun stuff? Uh, So many things. This is such a great book, so I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, One thing I wanted to call out is just yet another example of King's fantastic writing with a beautiful line. Sarah's long hair streamed out behind her. Later, when she got home, she would find a crisp yellow oak leaf caught in it. Overhead, the moon rode the sky, a cold sailor of the night. Hmm. That is just fantastic. That's enough all by itself, just that one paragraph to fall in love with a character. Yep. So King's really working hard to make me, the the reader, fall in love with Sarah just like Johnny is. And that's the whole point. Good work, King. Not to like poop on this line, but she must have had really long hair. Oak leaves are huge. I'm thinking of an oak leaf. It's like five or six inches long and she didn't notice it till she got home. It's possible. Especially if it's all crisp, it would be crackling in her hair as she moved around. It wouldn't be crisp. It would still be uh, soft. It would just be yellow. It said crisp. It says crisp right there. Or is the yellow crisp. It's like a crisp. It is a crisp yellow oak leaf. You're right. So it's, it's, it, the, the, the yellow is crisp though. The color. It's not the, the texture Perhaps. of the leaf. Yeah. Yeah. A freshly fallen leaf would still be kind of leathery and yeah. flexible. Fair enough. Maybe she didn't notice that. What if it was poison oak? Oh, no. (laughs) That would be yucking it up. One of the things I love about this book, and maybe because it's also the time of year we're reading it, is that it seems to be a fall book, just like the line you read, Mm -hmm. but also in the fact that they're going to a carnival towards the end of the year. It's near Halloween. 
And Sarah says that the fair made her think of the one in Bradbury, something wicked this way comes. Uh And that is one of my favorite Bradbury books. And even the Disney movie I loved. And when I was in grad school, I made everyone watch it one fall because I'm like, oh, I love this movie. And it's very Mm King-like. I should say King borrowed heavily from Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes. It's got young kids. It's got fall. It's got spooky stuff. It's a great distillation of um, Bradbury and King. And the whole scene at the fair that's got this undercurrent of wickedness, like everyone's concerned that the carny has rigged the wheel in some way. Earlier on, they get caught in this glass house of mirrors and Sarah keeps mm-hmm. bumping her head. Like all these things just made me think of that movie as well and, and the book. So um, I just wanted to point that out. If you've never read or seen that movie, go for it. So I wrote a couple of things down that I called Hearts in Atlantis all over again, but really Hearts in Atlantis is this all over again. Mm, yeah. In other words, what I'm saying is there are a lot of references to the choices available to young people, the consequences that happen to young people that Hearts in Atlantis explores in an explicit way that are just part of the everyday life of folks in this story. And one of them is when Sarah breaks up with an earlier boyfriend and then he flunks out of school, she asks him, well, what's next for you? And the line is, the answer he gave to her one neutral question was shocking enough. Vietnam, I guess. (laughs) So that was it. It was like the only thing keeping him and all the other college students and all the college students at Hearts at Atlantis out of going to Vietnam, keeping them from being drafted and going to war and potentially dying, was staying in college. Mm. And this guy didn't stay in college. Nope. So that's where he was going. And the other one is, this was an earlier part of Hearts in Atlantis when many years before Vietnam, Bobby Garfield goes to the fairgrounds and he's absorbed some of Ted Brodigan's powers so he can beat the three-card Monty guy. And in this book, they're at the ST fairgrounds where the naked bulbs of the midway twinkled in the darkness and the long spokes of the Ferris wheel neon revolved up and down. Mm. These are almost the same words King uses to describe Bobby Garfield's experience. It's the midway. There's a Ferris wheel. There's naked light bulbs lighting the way everywhere. Bobby Garfield was still a young boy when he went to this fair, but it's the same type of thing. Yeah. Well, if he's previewing Hearts in Atlantis here, he might be previewing another book, one that we've read, Jay. Let let me know if this reminds you of anything in particular. King says that it was counterpointed by Jerry Lee's pumping piano, music like some mad, dented hot rod that was too tough to die, rumbling out of the dead and silent 50s like an omen. Hmm. Could it be Christine? I think so. I'm like, boy, that's just like the log line for Christine right there. You could just say- Put that on a sheet and say, this is my next book. Okay, got it. I love it. Yes, the hot rod that was too tough to die. Let's go for it. Mm -hmm. It's like the hot rod against the world of shitters. (laughs) So there's a line, Sarah was aware of all these things in a vague way, like voices from another room where some incomprehensible party went on and on. And that made me think of a scene in the Overlook, Mm. like the party that just goes on and on. And... You almost can hear it, like it's this ephemeral echo of the sounds of a party. I got to admit, like we've spent so many months at this point thinking about The Shining and Dr. Sleep and the Overlook Hotel, 
yep i i can't help but see a little bit of that in just about everything <laughs> but that did really remind me of something that of a line that could have come right out of the shining it would have been wild that instead of a leaf in her hair she found a piece of confetti in her hair Ooh. <laughs> okay jay if that wasn't enough fun stuff we're going to take other worlds than these in a new direction wait what I think you mean other worlds than these, and that's because we're going to be doing a special Christopher Walken edition of other worlds than these. I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm going to say that. So Jay, instead of just talking about what's been going on recently with us in in pop culture and outside of the world of Stephen King, in honor of the fact that you and I both love Christopher Walken and he is the star of the Dead Zone movie. We're going to pick out some of our favorite Christopher Walken properties, whether that be TV, movie, appearances, song and dance, whatever it is, and highlight them in other worlds in these while we're covering the dead zone. How's that sound? That sounds great. All right. I'm going to start off with the movie The Deer Hunter from 1978, directed by Michael Cimino. This is a tough movie to watch, a very tough movie to watch. Uh, I watched it for the first time probably like four years ago. and. It was one of those movies that you're always told like, oh yeah, this is a great movie. This is a great movie. You should see it. And it was one that I had stayed away from because of the subject matter. And I finally watched it and it is a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. And it's probably not one that I'll sort of pick up and watch for fun anytime soon. But Christopher Walken is amazing in it. He really is. I think he won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. He's just fantastic in it. Robert De Niro's fantastic in it. Meryl Streep got her first Academy Award nomination for her role in it. And then just as sort of a notable Cleveland connection, even though the movie takes place in Vietnam and Pittsburgh, a lot of the scenes that were supposed to take place in Pittsburgh were filmed in the Cleveland area. The big wedding scene at the church and some of the other ones were filmed around here. And I've actually been to the church where uh, that, that scene is filmed. So a little hometown connection for me there. So my Other Worlds Than These, if you like Christopher Walken and are okay seeing a pretty intense movie, check out The Deer Hunter. Yeah, and don't forget John Cazale. I mean, <laughs> that guy is, he unfortunately died very young, mm -hmm. but he was in so many important movies. He was also, I think he might have been married to or in a very serious relationship with Streep. And, and he died not too long after making this movie and she was like a wreck because of it. Anyway, his death was tragic, and unfortunately, because of his uh, early demise, he never went on to the stardom that people like De Niro and Walken and Pacino got after doing certain other movies. He was in five movies in his career mm -hmm. in a six-year period, and all five of them were nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. Godfather, The Conversation... Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and then The Deer Hunter. Just amazing. Anyway, just want to shout out John Casale. I wanted to call out Brainstorm from 1983. Ooh. This movie came out the same year as The Dead Zone. That's right. And I have not seen this movie since I was a kid, but I remember being totally taken in by its concept. And the concept is... What if you could attach electrodes to your head and record what you see in your thoughts, like your dreams mm. or happy moments, sad moments, the high fidelity perception that you experience onto a tape and then watch it again later 
or share it with somebody else. So you could like go on a roller coaster, which is something they do in the movie, and record your experience of that roller coaster ride. And then somebody else could play that back and have the identical experience, truly know what it feels like to be on that roller coaster ride without actually sitting on a roller coaster. I love this idea because I would always wake up and not be able to remember dreams that I wanted to remember. Like, like, God, there's just that wisp of something and I loved it. And I wish I could have a recording of my entire night's dreams and then the next day watch it and see if they were actually as uh, potentially entertaining as I thought they might be. So I love this concept. And the nice twist that happens in the movie is that one of the characters, the scientists who invents this technology has a heart attack while she's Mm. in the lab. So she deliberately records herself, her experiences as she dies. So this, this recording, it becomes like the MacGuffin of the movie. Like everybody wants it or wants to keep it away or something. It's just like, we can't let this fall into the wrong hands. What happens if you watch this to the end? It's this really cool movie. I don't know that it holds up (laughs) in this day and age, but the idea of being able to do this is like still captivating to me yeah and christopher walken is great in it because he's just like this sort of mad scientist type guy he's he's sort of more of an academic sedate version of himself okay he's not the crazier later day christopher walken this is more of the deer hunter christopher walken it's a cool movie so check it out and listeners let us know what your favorite christopher walken performance is whatever you got with christopher walken we'd love to hear it or see it feel free to email it, tweet it, because we're going to be doing this for the next few episodes. And we've got a whole list, so we don't need yours, but we'll just add them to ours because we've got so much that we want to talk about. Yeah. We don't need help coming up with Christopher Walken greatness, but we would love to hear from you because you are our listeners and we want to know what you think. Exactly. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguysthedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Dead Zone, chapters 6 through 12. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. This is sort of a Dark Tower thinny. Christopher is not his real name. It's Ronald, which is an anagram of Roland, which makes me think that 40 years ago, he would have made a good Roland the Shane. He's got the look. He's a little bit tall, maybe not so attractive. Could play the cowboy with the guns and the horn that will uh, bring about the fall of the Dark Tower. Yeah, he'd say things like, uh, hey, Eddie, can you get me one of those Astins and a Tudor fish sandwich? <laughs> I'm really hungry. Eddie, I think you've forgotten the face of your father. How could you forget? It's right there. You could see it, but you forgot it. Not great. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
Your your impression is so much better than mine. <laughs> I don't know if it is, is it? Eddie, you got to know this. I do not aim with my eye. He who aims with his eye has forgotten the face of his father. I aim with my hand. But I do not shoot with my hand. I shoot with my mind. Now I'm getting a little bit, I'm getting a little Travolta. I'm starting to sound Travolta. Yeah, a little bit Travolta. I, I, I messed up there. Let me tell you about my good friend Cuthbert, <laughs> who sometimes I call Cuthbert. <laughs> Anytime I see a house of mirrors, I always think of Bruce Lee's uh -huh. House of the Dragon. Not House of the Dragon. Bruce Lee's House, house of the Dragon. <laughs> what is it called? Enter the Dragon. Enter every time. Uh, just cut that. Just cut all that. Bruce Lee's House of the Dragon. That'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> He's fighting Matt Smith with Kung Fu. And wins. Hey, Damon, easily. take some of this. Yes, the one fist punch <laughs> destroys him. <laughs> the deer hunter 